Of all the people that we look at during Advent, John the Baptist is probably the most eccentric and maybe the most improbable character of them all. Yet he is a key figure in the Advent story, not the Christmas story per se, but in the leading up to the unveiling, the revealing, the first coming of God through Jesus, his son, word become flesh, dwelling among us. In fact, there is no gospel of Jesus Christ without John the Baptist. His whole life was lived with one purpose in mind. His whole life was designed to proclaim the imminent arrival of the coming Messiah. His voice crying in the wilderness, Scripture tells us. As John Calvin said, a lantern shining on the Son of God. John was single-minded in his purpose. He was rather gnarly in his appearance. He was very tenacious in his temperament. And John was always courageous enough to speak truth to power. Even King Herod and his wife, whose, whose vendetta against him eventually cost John his life. The Episcopal priest uh, Fleming Rutledge said of John, after 2,000 years, John the Baptist still stands there irreducibly strange, gaunt and unruly, lonely and refractory, utterly out of sync with his age or our age or any age. Even Elijah is positively lovable and cuddly, in comparison. But for all of his fierceness and intractability, this prophetic firebrand, John, was completely submitted to the will of God. He was submitted to the one, the one whose appearing he lived and died to illuminate. John had said it himself. He said, after me comes one who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am unworthy to even untie. And when his disciples, John's disciples, one day were challenging whether Jesus should be having all the fame and crowds he was getting, and almost as this to say, John, you baptized him. Now he's over there doing his own thing. John simply looked at them and said, he must increase and I must decrease. Remember the John 3.31 challenge that Wade gave, 3.30, excuse me, 3.30 challenge he gave us a few months ago. He must increase, but I must decrease. At any point, John understood his place in the kingdom throughout his life. He understood that he was the forerunner to the Messiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord and make paths, his paths, straight. To further understand John's role, you have to go back to the Old Testament, which always helps us give context for anyone we look at, even in the New Testament. All the way back to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, where the prophet spoke, in fact, the very last words of the Old Testament, and he spoke and helps give us context for John. 
He said this on behalf of the Lord in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Those are the last words of the Old Testament. After those words were recorded, 400 years of silence. The four candles that are here in the Advent circle indicate the four centuries of silence. No more prophet of God in the land. No more prophetic utterance being spoken. God was silent. I can hardly stand 15 seconds of silence. We grow silent and we start getting nervous. We start wondering if he forgot. 400 years of silence. But every time someone showed up with any sort of prophetic tendency, everyone was asking, is that Elijah? You think that's Elijah? Maybe this is Elijah. They were all wondering when this one that had been promised would appear. Some even thought Jesus himself, when he showed up on the scene, was Elijah. But we all know, as many ascertain, that it was John, John the baptizer, who was the one Malachi promised. He was the Elijah. What's fascinating about Elijah is that it continues, he continues to be a central figure in the Jewish narrative, even to this day. You'll remember that Elijah was the one that did not experience a human death. He was taken up in a fiery chariot unto heaven. And so this is why the, the, the Jewish mindset was is that he would one day return as promised even by Scripture in Malachi and Isaiah and other places. And so for the Jewish person, Elijah was always, is still a central figure. Do you know that in Passover, in the Seder meal, that it is customary for the Jewish family to leave the front door open for Elijah? Did you know that many families leave a chair empty at the table for Elijah? And they also put a cup of wine called the cup of Elijah that no one else drinks. All of this, as we understand, was pointing to the one we call John the Baptist. And when you read the description of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it is almost word for word the description that we get of John the Baptist in all the Gospels. It's fascinating. In fact, looking at the passage we want to read today, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, we'll see. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God... As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John 
appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed, here's the description, with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he was not overweight. He did not struggle from gluten diet at all. In verse 7, and he preached saying, after he comes, after me comes, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he, the one who comes, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of words we use during Advent. Words like waiting and, and watching, longing and yearning, hoping, staying awake. And I have to admit that those are some of the hardest words in the English language. But here, here is also a challenging word that is given to us in this portion of the Advent story. Repent. Repentance. Mark tells us that John's message was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Repentance is not something that our postmodern world really thinks is necessary. Our world doesn't see it as all that important. Society is much more comfortable explaining away sin or celebrating sin or rationalizing sin or self-medicating oneself to numb its effect on you, or even blaming it on somebody else. And if people do think that you might need to repent, oftentimes they think that it only means that they need to say they're sorry, or I'm really, really sorry, and I'll never do it again. It's a sentiment, of a feeling of being sorrowful, of I'm sorry that I did that. And oftentimes, even in that, it's not true repentance because they're just sorry they got caught. But while sorrow over sin is, is part of it, it's not the whole package. Repentance requires, as Donna and Patrick and Melody have already helped us see, and, and Pete as well, Repentance is about a change of heart. It's about seeing things differently than we once did and feeling about things differently than we once did. It's about changing our heart, but also changing our direction, changing where we're heading. In fact, some see it as like a U-turn, as a 180-degree turn from the direction you were going to the direction that God requires. Repentance is where our hearts are changed and the way we see it and feel about it and think about it is changed and our actions change right behind it. Repentance, as the prophet Jeremiah puts it, is an amendment of our ways and our doings. It is an obedience to his voice. When he speaks, it actually causes us to change our mind, to change our thoughts our feelings, our behavior. 
Perhaps the editors of the Amplified Bible actually give a synopsis of repentance as well as anyone does. They say of it in this in Matthew 3, 1 from the Amplified. In those days, John the Baptist appeared preaching in the wilderness of Judea along the western side of the Dead Sea and saying, repent, which they say means change your inner self, your old way of thinking, Regret past sins. Live your life in a way that proves repentance. Seek God's purpose for your life. Why do you do all those things? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the words of John the Baptist in John in Matthew 3. Interestingly enough, they're the same words Jesus speaks in Matthew 4 when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Charles Spurgeon said it really, really well, and I love this quote. He said, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. And J.I. Packer described repentance this way. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. I love that. Our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. It reminds me of Martin Luther and his 95 theses that he nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany in the year 1517. It was the beginning of the Reformation. We've just celebrated on October 31st, uh, 503 years of the Reformation. And, and, And Luther's very first thesis said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Fascinating. Luther understood that repentance is not just the way we become believers. Repentance was the lifestyle that we were to have as believers. And Patrick mentioned this in his comments earlier, that it is, it's a posture that we maintain, not just a one-time action on our part. And it can only come from his initiation to us. The thing that I loved about what each person has shared this morning is the relational aspect of repentance. You see, a lot of people have the idea of the old time uh, doom and gloom, hellfire and brimstone preacher, turn or burn. Thank you, Louie. He liked that. But that's not what repentance really is. It is a relational peace that actually produces hope and courage. And grace and peace. It doesn't bring us down into condemnation. It gives us life and hope-filled expectation. 
Following Jesus is a life of repentance, an ongoing process. It is a continuum of sin recognition, of receiving his forgiveness, and amending our ways and our actions according to what he has revealed. It's relational. As we progress in learning God's truth, we are called to continually reorient ourselves around him by the power of the Holy Spirit that is operating in our lives. We're called to have our own personal reformation where we no longer see things the way we did even maybe just a few moments ago. And now we're reformed into seeing them the way he does and responding to him in faith, believing that he puts substance to our, our, our steps of faith towards him, that he reforms and transforms our lives, that he renovates us, that he reorients us around his purpose. We find ourselves growing more and more in love with him, Because we're thinking more and more like him and the way that he desires for us to think. And when we do, we begin to understand that repentance is not just us feeling sorry or shameful about our sin. It's not just something we think others should do because we did it once and now they need to get their act together and do like what we did. You need to repent of your sin. They need to repent of their sin. They obviously need to repent of their sin. No, it's not that. Our process of repentance is expanding to understand it's me, O Lord, in need of your grace. It's Jesus giving a gift to us. That's what repentance is. It's his invitation to us to come in and fellowship with him. It's a doorway that he's opened that we can have fellowship with his presence. So here's how I would like for us to conclude today. This is a broad theme, and it can cause you to almost either check out because it's too big, all the things we might need to repent of, or we begin to just check out because we think we already did it. But here's what I'd like for us to do. I want you just right now, right where you're sitting, dream about God's vision for you. Consider what his vision for you, your life is. What does God have in mind for you? Why did he save you? What purpose does he have for you? What vision, maybe portions of which he has already explained to you. What is God's vision for your life? I use the word dream because God invites us into something beyond what we presently see. Just because you see it, doesn't mean it's always real, but just because you don't doesn't exclude it from reality. God's dream is bigger than ours. His vision is for us. Do you know what it is for you? Think about that for a minute. It's not a goal to be achieved, but rather his dream, his vision for you to be committed to. So after you've thought about the vision God has for you, your life, pinpoint anything in your life that is preventing that vision from happening. 
Think about anything that is blocking that from actually coming more fully into a reality. It could be an unhealthy attitude, anxiety or fear, worry. It could be an unhealthy behavior like the fact that you're prone to judge people or be mean and hateful to people or the fact that maybe you lust after things that are not yours or maybe the fact that you gossip and you don't have time to think about God's vision because you're too busy gossiping about other people. And it could be an unhealthy relationship where you allow certain ones and even entities and media and ideologies to influence you. What is it that's in your life that is a behavior or a person or thinking that actually is preventing God's dream from taking place? When you have that in mind, after you've pinpointed that one or multiple things, here's what I want you to do. Repent. Repent. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess and receive His forgiveness. Confess, Lord, I'm sorry of my anxiety. It keeps me debilitated. I'm sorry that I judge other people. That It actually limits me from obeying God the way I need to. I'm sorry that I've let influences come into my life that are not yours. Media or ideologies or conspiracy theories that have influenced me to the point that I don't even know what God is saying, but I sure know what I think about it. Repent. Confess those things to God and let Him bring forgiveness to your heart and then amend your ways. Amend where you've been Add an addendum to it. Shift your thinking. Walk in His way. Determined to leave unhealthy relationships, attitudes, behaviors behind. Finally, I want to ask you to do one more thing. As a community, as a group together, as God's people, we may need to repent of things. And so what I'm asking you to do to contribute to that is to consider the Lord, what he would say to us as a community. Where is it that you need, we need to spend our resources and time differently? Where is it that you can not just complain about it, but actually be a part of the solution of the turning back to him? Maybe you need to engage in relationships that you normally don't. Maybe you need to make friendships with people that you don't agree with ethnically, politically, um, socially, generationally. They're different from you. Maybe you need to build a more robust community with people that you don't know that well. Whatever it is that God may be saying to us communally, we also want to repent of that. To be more open to how God might work through us to reach those that are around us. Let's be a community known for its enlarged practice of repentance, where we live the continuum of always looking and being adjusted by him, where we amend our ways, where we, where we give ourselves to what God is saying and doing, 
and where we know God is leading us into freedom. Lord Jesus, we pray that these things would penetrate our hearts. And I pray for anyone here today that is struggling, that is not living in your way. I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict and bring us into new relationship with you, allowing us to more fully obey your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.